Hello, Taylor Hemnes here from 41 Action News with another episode of Faith in KC. I'm going to start this week um, by acknowledging something from last week. Last week's episode was with my first uh, Muslim guest, Dr. Imam Dr. Abdel Hamid Al-Jazawi from the Islamic Center of Johnson County. We had a really wonderful conversation. Thanks again to him for his time. Um, <clears throat> but there were some unkind comments about that uh, particular episode last week on Facebook. And I just want to encourage you again um, to, to be kind when you're commenting on these. This is obviously a really um, personal thing for a lot of people, for, for most people that are people of faith, um, and a very passionate thing. And so whenever you do choose to comment, I, I really I welcome your comments and your thoughts and your emails, but, but please uh, keep it as, as civil as possible. I'd really appreciate that moving forward. Um, and I hope you're looking forward to this episode today. I definitely am. Today's episode is with uh, Reverend Adam Hamilton. Um, Reverend Hamilton is the lead pastor at the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection uh, in Leewood and several other campuses here around Kansas City. It's a very large church congregation, one of the largest Methodist church congregations in the world, more than 20,000 people. Uh, and that's mind-blowing to me. Um, I think I've talked about a little bit on the series that I'm from a small town. I grew up in a town in East Texas of about 1,200 people. And so my church growing up that I was a part of on a, on a good Sunday had 85 people in it. Um, very small town church. Uh, and still is a, a small church when I go back and visit. Um, so the idea of thousands of people gathered together is still, even after growing up and going to larger churches, pretty amazing to me. Um, so I really wanted to, to talk to him about um, how the last year has impacted a church of that size and that a congregation of that size, obviously, and just the idea of the, the mega church, so to speak. Um, but as you may be aware, Reverend Hamilton is also um, an accomplished author, um, written several books about faith. He's been invited to speak at things all over the world. Um, so I really wanted to pick his brain about um, how people choose faith. I, as I mentioned, I, I grew up in, in church. I, from a very early age, I was going to church because my, my parents said that's that's what we're going to do. Um, so the, the concept of, of choosing faith as an adult um, is not one that, that was mine. I know it is for a lot of people. I really wanted to, to pick his brain about why people choose to do so and the adverse of that, why people choose to, to walk away. Um, as you'll see in this conversation, Reverend Hamilton is a uh, very intelligent person and has um, a pretty great wealth of experience to share um, with as he answers those those questions. So I really appreciate him taking the time, and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. As always, you can reach out to me at taylor.hymnus at kshp.com if you'd like to email. Um, you can find me on so, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, look me up, tell me what you think about these episodes, tell me what you would like to see, who you'd like to hear from, what topics you'd like to talk about. Um, but I, I really want to encourage you to keep it as civil as possible. And remember that um, while a faith might not be yours, uh, it is no less uh, important to the person who it does belong to and who chooses to to follow that faith. And this, this series, as I've stressed before, is not about suggesting any one faith over another or suggesting that you become a, a member of a faith community if you are not. It's simply to examine how people are using faith in new ways right now, maybe for the first time right now, maybe they're walking away um, right now. And that's what this series is to do. So I hope you enjoy this latest episode.
I'm very glad to be joined today by Reverend Adam, Adam Hamilton for United Methodist Church of the Resurrection here in the Kansas City area. Uh, Reverend Hamilton, thank you so much for taking some time. I know you have a very busy schedule, but thank you for taking some time out to chat with me today. Taylor, it's great to chat with you. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thanks. So um, this is a weird first question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Wikipedia says that your church is the largest United Methodist Church congregation in the world. Is that is that right? Is that accurate? Uh, that is accurate. Um, the United Methodists are in the United States and uh, and in probably, I don't know, 20, 30 other countries, and we are the largest United Methodist Church by both membership and worship attendance. And uh, yeah, we don't really think about it that much, but yeah, it, that is true. I know you, do, you say you don't think about it that much, but what is that? Does that designation mean anything to you? Does it, does it, I mean, obviously, I know it's got to be a good feeling to have that many people part of your congregation, but what what does that designation signify to you, if anything? It, it, I really don't think about it. I uh, what I think about is all the people who who are part of the congregation, and that to me is really exciting. I uh, I guess it does. Here's what it means to me: Jesus once said, "Too much is given, much more is expected," and so I feel like we have a responsibility as the largest church in our denomination to uh, you know to try to encourage other congregations to strengthen them to give away the resources that we've developed or the ideas that we have that are good ideas to share those and so we try to do a lot of that and i've uh, had the good fortune of speaking across the united methodist church around the world to try to train leaders and to teach them i've spoken to about 20,000 pastors and church leaders in the last 10 years and uh, traveled to uh, you know, Africa, I've been to, to Russia multiple times, to Europe, to Central America, uh, trying to, you know, just encourage other pastors and to offer, you know, some of the lessons we've learned at Resurrection. We also prepare a lot of resources. So I, I've written a number of books, and those are used by about 15,000 churches every year. Uh, there's, um, we do a training event uh, every fall where we had, last fall, we had 4,000, over 4,000 pastors and church leaders uh, join us on a Zoom two-day conference, and we try to bring in great speakers to encourage them. So we really feel, I don't think we feel a sort of sense of pride as in, wow, look at us, but I think it's more like we feel we, you know, we've been blessed with all these people and resources. How do we give that away to help other people, other churches uh, be stronger? What about the, the because the, there there are, I mean, period negative conversations about church and religion and faith altogether. Um but specifically those to uh, the idea of the super church or the mega church, the, the large congregation like like yours. Do, do you hear those kinds of, of negativity or those kind of criticisms? And what do you hear about? Them? Yeah. And there's a lot of assumptions, you know, mega church is sort of the term that's used. And so people have an idea of what a mega church would look like. It's like a TV evangelist and, and they're, you know, there's a whole lot of negative connotations. And we just say, we're just a really big church. We What we've said is we're not going to turn people away, and we're going to do everything we can to welcome as many people as want to come. And uh, and so, you know, that includes creating a facility large enough to be able to handle that, you know, those numbers of people. But I never, when I started the church 30 years ago, I never had been to a church with more than 300 people in worship. It was never on my radar screen. I didn't, I didn't go, wow, let's build this church with 20 or 30,000 people. I, I just thought, let's love people and let's do a really good job of ministering in the community and talking about faith in a way that makes sense to people today. And if we do that, we're going to just, we're not going to turn people away. And, and so it surprised me. I mean, I can't, you know, I never anticipated this happening. And so we feel, you know, again, I feel like if you come and visit Church of the Resurrection or right now you visit online, I, I hope that we feel like a, 
like a really big small church in some ways, you right. know, that people are connected in relationships that we're, we try to be humble in what we're doing and try to ask, you know, how do we serve the community well and how do we love people and how do we help them grow in their faith? And, and, um, and so a lot of times people, I get this a lot from people who worship with us and they go, I was so surprised. I had this idea of what this church would be like because it's big and, you know, but instead it wasn't like that at all. It was like, you know, you, you know, this church genuinely cares about people and, and is trying to be what it means to be the church, you know, to help people grow in their faith, to know, you know, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow God and how do we live our lives in response to our faith? And so I think people are surprised when they, when they finally come check us, check us out, but it is easy to look at some big gargantuan church and just say, uh, you know, and, and here's, so here's one of the things I say to people, if you don't like a big church, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. I've, I've never heard that before. That's and, and you know, it's interesting. Um, in when the church was founded, the, like the birthday of the church is the day of Pentecost. In the Book of Acts, it was uh, you know after Christ ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit came and the disciples went out preaching. And it says in one day three thousand people joined the church. Right. You know, we've never had three thousand people join the church in one day. We had five hundred people join on one big weekend one time. But uh, so three thousand people joined that day. And in early Methodism. John Wesley would go preach to the coal miners and the people who weren't involved in church and the farmers, and he'd go and preach in the fields. And there'd be times he'd have thousands of people show up and he never went to his head. It was just like, there's all these people, we're going to do whatever it takes to be able to minister to them and care for them. And that's how I look at our, at our church. We have opportunities because of our size to do things that a lot of other churches couldn't do. And, and so we look at programs and ministries that we offer, and we just say anybody from any church can come to those because a lot of churches couldn't offer the specialized ministry or program, and they can stay a part of their church, but they can use anything that we have. You know, if there's any resources or programs, it's available for anybody to be able to use. And that's that's kind of how we see it as, you know, we've got all these people. What can we do with this large number of people to have a positive impact on our city and on our world? I've got to say, I, I grew up, I'm a member of the Church of Christ, and I grew up in a very small church in East Texas. A, a you know Easter Sunday was eighty five for us. Yeah. I, a tiny, tiny church in East Texas. So the the idea of a church of with, with a congregation the size of what you're describing is almost unfathomable to me. And I I don't I don't know even through college and moving around that kind of thing. I don't know that I've ever even visited a church of your size. Obviously, I'm a member of a church bigger than that now, but then what I grew up in, I don't think I've ever even visited a church of your size. Um, personally, the challenges with that for you are what? I mean, I, I, I've i never been a member of a church that the the preacher didn't know my name when I walked up and shook his hand and said hello on a Sunday morning. That's right. got to be challenging when you've got literally thousands of people that, that are part of the congregation. What are the the personal challenges of being in your job with a congregation that size. Yeah. Well, that, that is one of them is uh, for a lot of people, especially if you grew up in a small church or if you're coming, coming from a small church, one of the beauties of a small or mid-sized church is the fact that the pastor knows every single person. I knew everybody in the congregation up to 3000 people. And when wow. we crossed the 3000 barrier, and part of that was as I got older, I, the brain cells were dying. So I couldn't, <laughs> you know, I couldn't re remember everybody, but, um, but it, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the shortcomings. But part of what I tell people is, you know, people say, well, you know, I, I want to have a personal relationship with you, Pastor Adam. I'm like, talk to my wife. It's not that great, really. 
<laughs> I don't, I, I, I would love to, I mean, I, you know, love to connect with people right after my call with you. I have a Zoom call with one of our members who lost her husband a couple of years ago. And, you know, but I can't do all of that pastoral care. We have a whole team of people who do it. But the aim that I have isn't that people have a personal relationship with me. Um, it's that they have a personal relationship with Christ and that, uh, that, and that they have a relationship with people. And so we do a lot with small groups. We have, a, we have a whole team of people called congregational care ministers, and these are trained, uh, volunteers in our congregation who have been through pastoral care training. We have 140 of them and they're there to have coffee with somebody once, when somebody wants to have a coffee, they're there to be with people when they're in need along with our pastors. And one of the things I love about this ministry is as an example, um, we have people who've had, you know, been through cancer treatment, really scary things, or they've lost a loved one, or they lost a child or whatever. If you lose a child, it, it might be nice to talk to me, and, I, and I'm going to be there to, to talk with folks who lose children, but, but even more powerful is when there's somebody else who's been through this on the, in the same, they lost a child too, and they're there to care for you and have a cup of coffee with you, or, you know, they've been through breast cancer, and they're there when you're going through breast cancer. There's something about having people like that. And so, so you know, our aim is to really make sure that people have people who can care for them, and we have great systems for congregational care and for discipleship and growing in their faith. And, uh, and I tell people, uh, you know, like sometimes people ask, well, if I'm in the hospital, will you come visit me? And I'm like, I do make hospital calls once a month. I get, you know, maybe twice a month, I get to make hospital calls. And now with COVID, I haven't been able to do that. So it's by video oftentimes, but, yeah. but I say, if I show up at your hospital, you should be scared. <laughs> if I walk in your hospital room, you should be scared. It must mean that something really, you know, you're in a pretty bad place. Well, that's not yeah. actually true. A lot of times I'm visiting five people at the hospital and, you know, three of them are doing fine and two of them are in a tough place. But but what I say is it's really not about the pastor, it's about the people. And yeah. so my job, I tell people, my job is to be the best tasting worm. If we're fishing for people, I'm going to be a, the best tasting bait I can be. I want to be, I want to preach good sermons and care for people. But I want to set up a, a system in which our church cares for people. And I think we do that pretty well. We don't always get it right, but I think we, we try to do that pretty well. In previous episodes of this series, I've talked to uh, other pastors and other um, leaders of church congregations uh, about how COVID-19 impacted just the logistics of, of doing church at their respective congregations. Um, that's another reason I wanted to speak to you just because of uh, the, the size of your congregation. I went back to my church this last Sunday for the first time since March. It was the first time my, my family and I had been inside the building. We had had some out on the, on the front lawn kind of congregation or meetings earlier in the fall. It was our first time back in the building. And we were able to to sit apart from each other and there were pews blocked off, that kind of thing. Logistically, how do you follow the rules of keeping people safe in COVID-19 with such a large congregation? Yeah, so we uh, we went back in October um, for five weeks and then, we, and then we stopped again as the numbers were shooting back up. We had great protocols in, in place. What I said to our congregation is we wanna do this so well that it's safer to come to church than it is to go to the grocery store. So people are used to having to go to the grocery store. It's safer to come to church than go to the grocery store. Now you can continue to do this online or you can do it in person. And we really were doing this for those people who are saying, I have to be with other people. I have to be in church because otherwise we're worshiping online and on TV every Sunday and people can join us that way. And they can join small groups and Bible studies online, children's Sunday school online, all of those things. So we had about eight to 10% of our congregation came back. Most of them didn't. Most of them were like, once there's a vaccine, I'll be back. But right now, worshiping online is fine. That's working for me. And, uh, and so we, 
you know, and as you can imagine, we have five campuses. So every one of our buildings is different. They're, most of them are smaller than our campus in Leewood. But our site in Leewood, the room seats 3,500 people. And if we had 500 people show up in the room, they're spread out. You know, there was plenty of room to spread out. And then really great protocols. Then we have a HVAC system that's, that is like the top of the line when it comes to, you know, it's got an ultraviolet light. It's got all these kind of things. So a lot of things we were able to do, cleaning between services, all that. Uh, so I think we did an excellent job. And, and over those five weeks, we didn't have anyone that we knew of who, were, who traced back any, um, you know, contraction of COVID from being with us. So I think we did a great job. But once the numbers went back up in uh, in November and they started really climbing, we felt like we could continue to do what we were doing and it could be safe. What we wanted to do was to say to the medical community, we don't we are going to try to set an example for other churches of we're not going to do this because we don't want people we don't want you taxed and we don't want people getting sick because we set an example of being back in person. Now we're you know we're at the point you know yesterday was the highest number of deaths so far with 4,400 deaths in COVID uh, due to COVID. This is, uh, you and I are talking on a Wednesday. And so we're still not back yet. We're, uh, you know, we are talking about when we're coming back and we will be, you know, and we're looking at whether it starts with Lent, February 21st, or whether we wait until a little bit later during the season of Lent or right after Easter. But our primary aim is to set a good example and to be able to encourage uh, you know, people to be safe, to wear their masks and to socially distance and to do all of those kind of things. So now I want to get into the, the part of the conversation that I was really looking forward to. Not that I wasn't excited about hearing the first part, but this is the part I really was interested in picking your brain about. Um, we started this conversation, this series, as part of our rebound initiative at 41 Action News about how, how people are choosing whatever myriad ways there are to, to try and bounce back from what has been an awful year for most people. I grew up in the church. My dad was an elder in the church. Um, the idea of, of coming to faith is foreign to me to a certain extent. What have you found is the reason that adults come to faith for the first time this year or any other year, but you can talk about this year specifically. What is the reason that you found that people who were not brought up in a faith community decide, I'm going to try this? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say uh, my family is from the Church of Christ as well. So my mm -hmm. mom's side of the family is Church of Christ. My dad's side was Catholic, and we ended up meeting in the middle at a Methodist church. So, <laughs> um, so I have a great appreciation for the Church of Christ. My uh, my great aunt and my grandmother's family were all in uh, Blackwell, Oklahoma, at the Church of Christ there, and okay. and uh, had wonderful experiences in the in the in that congregation. Um, so what's interesting about you know this last year, and I think probably most of your viewers could uh, could say this it, you know it's been a really hard year for a variety of reasons not just covid we knew it was going to be hard with a you know politically charged polarized world going into the elections regardless of uh, uh you know if, if covid had never happened and uh and of course racial injustice and and protests related to that you know that was sure. added another dimension to things but what i found was what was surprising to me was how many good things came out of all of this so you know so as an example Levon and i uh, you know, when the office is closed, I officed here at the house. I'm in my basement here at, at the house. And we ate every meal together for the last, you know, 10 months, 11 months. We we have never spent so much time together in our lives. And uh, and we didn't, I wasn't traveling and speaking and doing other things. And it's like, we looked at each other and said, I really love you. I really, yeah. 
you know, in the middle of this, I have come to have a deeper love for my wife than I ever had before. She and I both had COVID, you know, and so Christmas got canceled for us. The kids couldn't come over and our granddaughter couldn't come over. We, you know, it was over the Christmas holiday and I'm still trying to preach on video while I'm you know, sick with COVID. And, and, you know, fortunately we had a pretty moderate case, but, you know, even then, like we had this quiet Christmas we've never had in our whole 39 years of marriage. We never spent just the two of us in front of the fireplace. You know, there was something beautiful about that. And, uh, and a whole lot of other, you know, ways in which as Americans, as humans, we took stock of our lives and what really mattered. And I think that happened when it came to uh, church. So, you know, we closed the church building down and we went only online. We've been online for a long time, 10 years, but we went only online. And in a time when people were afraid and they were looking for hope, people invited their friends and, you know, our, our worship attendance tripled. We, we almost tripled our attendance uh, during this year of people who were joining us online. And we went on TV. I, I ne we never would have gone on TV. Um, but, you know, this led us, you know, there was an opportunity for us to be on for a few weeks. And we found all these new people, people in prisons who were joining us, writing us notes like, you know, they, they couldn't join us online, but they're writing. And I never thought about that. And they're writing saying, wow, you know, we've started worshiping with you. Thank you so much for being on TV. And so we decided to, you know, continue our TV work. And, uh, and we, have seen, you know, the opportunity to serve people with food. And, you know, we, we gave away uh, four times more food. And this is a big thing for us. We, we have, you know, food drives. And, you know, in 2019, I think we gave away 60 tons of food or something. This year was 240 tons of food in neighborhood food events where we went out and took food to people who we knew were struggling because they work in restaurants and they weren't, you know, their restaurants were closed or other things. And, and so I found our people are like, we want to do something. We want to help people. You know, we want to do even more than what we've been doing. And so, so what we found is a whole lot of people were looking for hope. They were looking for uh, comfort and consolation and help. And they tuned into our services. And I've gotten hundreds of letters from people saying, you know, I turned, turned off church for a long time. Yeah. And I've found hope coming to your worship services. Thank you. And, and we, we started this church in 1990, I was 25 when, we, when I came to start this church. <clears throat> and one of the passions was to try to reach thinking people who don't go to church. Like our goal wasn't to try to get people to come to our church who go to other churches. It was who are the people, you know, half the population who's, who's just, they go at Christmas, Easter, or maybe not at all. And I wanted to know, why don't they go? And, you know, for a lot of those people, there are questions or, or roadblocks that trip them up when it comes to faith. And so when we started the church, our aim was to try to answer the kind of questions thinking people ask or people have been tripped up by faith. We want to try to do church in a way that causes them to go, wow, I didn't know a church could be like that. Or, wow, you answered my questions about faith. So right now I'm in a series of sermons called A Thinking Person's Guide to Faith. And uh, the first week we talked about science and religion. And a lot of the folks out there who don't go to church also think you can't embrace science and religion. So I interviewed five leading scientists, you know, and two uh, physicists and a uh, couple microbiologists and a chemist. And, uh, you know, and I wanted people to see it's possible to be a deeply committed Christian, a person of faith, and to embrace science. And that these are not, you know, but, but we do have to think about scripture a little differently in certain places when it comes to, you know, six days of creation, you know, 6,000 yeah. years ago. For most scientists, that's just not going to be that, that doesn't make any sense, but you don't have to look at the Bible in that way, in that literalistic way. And so last week we talked about when Christians get it wrong and how often Christians in their hypocrisy or in the things that they do turn people away from faith. And so we talked about that and recognize that's not a distinctly Christian problem. Humans have this problem. 
as humans, we mistreat each other. As humans, we we uh, act in ways that are incompatible with you know life of love. And so then we had to confess that you know sometimes we get it wrong. And then what does it look like when we get it right? And uh, this week we're talking about the Bible and the questions people have about the Bible and things that don't make sense to them. And how do you make sense of these things and and uh, contradictions and and you know. Uh, just things that are hard to swallow if you're a if you're a thoughtful person who isn't necessarily a person of faith. And uh, anyway, the last sermon in the series we're going to talk about um, when bad things happen to good people. And so I find the two things that keep most people from Christian faith, three things. One is the Christians that have acted in ways that were unchristian. Right. Uh, a second is uh, is these questions about the Bible, and a third is the problem of suffering or evil. And so we try to address those things in a way that I think most people, thoughtful people who come say. And I, I mean, literally, I'd had thousands of people who have joined the church as a result of us talking about these things and saying, for the first time, Christian faith makes sense to me. And so we, we try to speak to people's head, and we try to speak to their heart, and then finally we call them to action to serve God with their hands. And that's a sort of our basic approach we've taken to faith over 30 years. And, and I found this year, more than ever, more than any other year, we've had people tuning in and saying, I... I think I need God in my life. I think I need uh, something bigger than myself to live for. And, and so it's been really pretty cool, pretty exciting. And I think probably a lot of churches have seen that. What about the flip side of that? Um, there have been, there've been people that have gone through um, a tougher time in their life in the last year than maybe any other year of their lives. There've yes. been people that obviously have lost loved ones, people that have lost jobs who have, um, been faced with questions and things that they have never had to face before. Um, as a person of faith, I, I, I am familiar with the phrase and have used the phrase faith challenging things that happen in, in your life. Um, what have you seen is the reason someone will go, nope, it, it, it's, it's not working for me anymore. I don't feel like God is listening to me. I don't feel like this is providing me the solace or the comfort that I needed to. Yep. What, what do you see as the reason that, that people walk away? Yeah, well, I think, uh, first of all, I'd say for most people, some dimensions of this year have been harder than any year before, especially the social isolation. I think the fact that people have not been able to connect with each other. So you see an increase in the number of suicides at various points during this last year, uh, a whole host of places where, you know, things are tough. But the question that you have when you're going through something tough is, is there any reason to hope in the middle of this? And, uh, and that's where I think people have tuned in who have walked through hard times. I've, you know, I've preached more funerals this year than I have ever preached in my, in my ministry. Um, and we've had, you know, we had 25, at least 25 COVID deaths. I think probably more than that, but I know of 25 COVID deaths. And, and then how we do those, you know, the fact that you can't be with your loved one when they're dying. In many cases, this was the case. So I've been praying with people. I actually was at Research Medical Center last month with a family who were camped out in, in front of the hospital because they couldn't go in to be with their husband and dad and grandfather while he was dying. And so, you know, we stood outside out front of the hospital, we prayed and they were on their, on, you know, FaceTime talking with him, you know, I mean, there's a lot of hard, hard things, but I think those hard things. So I think one of the, one of the challenges is sometimes the theology that Christians have um, adds to the sense of this isn't working for me or, uh, where is God in the middle of this? And so sometimes people say things like, well, everything happens for a reason, or it must be the will of God. And that sounds kind of pious. It doesn't sound very pious if your child was just killed in a car accident and somebody says, must be the will of God. I remember right. a woman came, 
came to the congregation. She it was her first Sunday. And I said, well, I'm so glad you're here. She said, well, this is my first time in church in 15 years. And I said, uh, well, tell me your story. And she said, I lost my six-year-old 15 years ago. And people in the church said, it must've been the will of God. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to worship or follow a God whose will was to take my six-year-old child. Right. So I tell people, don't say those things. You know, I know you mean well, and, and we, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, ultimately God is, you know, forces all things to work together for good. We know that in the scripture, but, but I don't think God created COVID and said, let's just make a whole lot of people sick and take 375,000 lives. I just don't believe that God is in the business of, you know, of making his children sick. We wouldn't, not to, we wouldn't give our children cancer to teach them a lesson or to punish them. We just wouldn't do that. We wouldn't break their arms or legs to teach them something. That's not loving or compassionate. And yet often we think that God somehow either did that or he didn't stop that from happening. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the problem of suffering and what, you know, where is God in the middle of this? And, and my own thinking about this is that we live in a world, you know, we have trillions of cells in our bodies. Sometimes they just go haywire. That's just a part of life. Most of the time, the body takes care of them. Sometimes it doesn't. God created our bodies with healing processes to, you know, I scratch my car, I got to take it to the body shop. I scratch my body and it heals itself. I mean, how cool is that? And at the same time, God has created these processes. God has created a planet that, that functions in these certain ways, but there are risks involved in all of that. Like, you know, when you're going to, do you have kids, Taylor? I don't remember. I do. I have three kids. Yes. Okay. Well, so I have two. And when you have kids, uh, and my kids are grown up, but when you have kids, you, you're taking a risk even having them, you know, that they could get sick, something bad could happen to them. And you know, that's part of the risk of, of it. And when they grow up, you give them their keys, to their car, you know, and I remember crying the first time my, my oldest daughter drove off in the car to school. And, uh, and I realized, I'm going to give her the keys. And there's the laws of physics mean that sometimes people get in car accidents, and they die. And, and I'm it's not, not their fault. It's not anything they did. It just right. It's not anything they did. It's not and and it's not God doing it either. That God isn't saying, you know what, I'm going to cause a car accident today with this person. And this is a part of the risk of living and a part of and so the question is for me, is God micromanaging or like the Wizard of Oz pushing buttons and pulling levers behind a screen somewhere, or is the world happening as it happens and our bodies things happen in our bodies. And God isn't the one who's miraculously going to intervene in every situation, but instead God is the one who's going to come alongside us, walk with us, is going to force good to come from suffering and tragedy, and promises us that even if the worst thing happens, that is, even if we die, the worst thing is not the last thing. Frederick Buechner once said that about Easter. Easter says that the worst thing is never the last thing. And in Jesus' resurrection, Christians believe that God said that death is not the end, and evil and hate and cruelty and inhumanity never get to have the final word. And that to me is what my faith brings to me is a sense that no matter what happens, I still belong to God, that I am loved by God, that if, if I die, I'm going to be with God. And, and if in this life there is suffering, somehow I put that in God's hands and he's able to bring something good and beautiful from it. Dr. Martin Luther King said this after, a, uh, after the bombing of the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church when I think it was 19... Early 1960s, and uh, and four children were killed. They were going to Sunday school, and there were horrible people who set up dynamite to blow up, you know, underneath the steps of the church. Yeah. And uh, when he's preaching the funeral for three of those little girls, he says God has a way of wringing good from suffering and tragedy, a bringing, a forcing good from it. In that case, that event reverberated around the world, and and it led to some of the civil rights changes that happened in our country as a result of that. It wasn't that God wanted those girls to die. This is part of what happened because somebody evil did something bad, but God forces good from that. And I, I don't know about you, Taylor, but in my life, 
I look back on the most tragic and the painful things in my life. And in every case, all of those somehow made me the person I am today. And I wouldn't be pastoring Church of the Resurrection were not for the death of two of my best friends when I was, you know, my first year of college. I mean, there's just so many things that, and so I look at that and say, God doesn't will that. He doesn't want horrible things to happen. We live in a world where sometimes they do. And, uh, and God's way isn't to miraculously, supernaturally intervene. It is to work through people most of the time. Sometimes miracles happen, but it is largely working through doctors and medical researchers and, and reporters who report stories, uh, you know, that, that move people to take action. And so, you know, I, I, so I look at suffering a bit differently to say, I think it points towards why we need God. And I think it points towards the fact that, you know, what I, I love Psalm 23, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say I won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you're my shepherd. I'm going to walk through that valley. Or, you know, in Isaiah, there's this place where God says, you know, when you walk through the floodwaters, I will be with you. Yeah. Like he doesn't say you're not going to walk through the floodwaters. And in fact, the entire Bible, if you look at it, is largely the story. Well, it's largely the story of either people doing things they shouldn't do and creating a mess and God cleaning it up. Or it's the story of people who are suffering or experiencing adversity and, and God's redemptive work through that. So at the center of the Christian faith is God who walks among us. And at the age of 33, he's tortured to death on a cross. So sometimes people think, well, Christian faith says that if you believe in God and you know you love Jesus, nothing bad's going to happen to you. How can that be our message when our Savior was tortured to death? Right. right. But the resurrection is the rest of that story that says God takes the pain and redeems it. And then the pain and the death and the torture never has the final word. So for me, I, I'm, I'm this, I have, I just feel like, you know, our faith leads us to say, look, A, God cares and you are loved and there are people that God will bring along your path and there's, there's redemption in this, in the sadness, and the suffering and the pain never gets to have the final word. And I feel that with every single family I've ministered with, every situation that I've been in that's hard and difficult. And, and that's why I think we're people of hope. In fact, Zechariah says that we're, he calls the Israelites prisoners of hope. I yeah, think yeah. we're prisoners of hope. I just love that idea. I had never thought of or asked anyone this question, and I don't know what that says about me um, as a person of faith, honestly. But as you were talking, it, it, the, what I thought about was, does, does faith boil down to, and I'm talking about Christianity, whatever faith you want to talk about, does having <clears throat> faith boil down to being able to have a comfort level of what you believe to be the higher power and their role in your life? Is, is that what faith boils down to? I mean, is, is it about being able to say, this is what I, in my case, God, this is what I believe God's role in my life to be, and I'm comfortable with that, whether it be a hands-on God, a hands-off. Is that what faith boils down to? Well, uh, you know, there's a different different senses in which we can use faith. So I can have faith in somebody. I can have faith in a political system. You know, faith faith is a, is a trust, and I think it's generally a trust in the goodness of whatever we're having faith in. <clears throat> I have faith in you. You know, it means means I I trust that you're a good person. You're trying to do the right thing. So the question is, what's the object of our faith, and and does the object of our faith merit our faith? Like I can right. have faith in somebody who's not a good person and they're not gonna do the right thing even if I have faith in them. And so when it comes to faith in that ultimate sense, like a capital F faith, I think it is trusting. And so I, I'll speak specifically about Christian faith. I think it is trusting that there is a God who created all this. You know, when I look at the world around me, 
and I see its beauty. I don't think it was just an accident. I think that there is one who is the artist and the designer and the physicist and the biochemist and the, and the geneticist who designed this. And so I look at that and I think, okay, I have faith that there is one who is behind all of this. Then I want to know more about that God that I believe in. And there I look to the scriptures and I look to, as a Christian, I look to Jesus to see what is God like. And so I have faith in the God who is seen in Jesus. And then that faith is a, is a trust. Um, so I tell people, my, my daughter, now my granddaughters, my daughters, now my granddaughter, um, we play this game when they were growing up called flying squirrel. And so they would go up four, I'd get home from work. They'd go up four steps up the steps and they'd say, pop, daddy, daddy, flying squirrel. Now Stella says, papa, papa, flying squirrel. So she, they'd go up four steps and they'd leap head first, like a squirrel right off the steps. And I would catch them. You probably have done this with your kids. And then they would go up to the fifth step and then the sixth step. And, uh, and what was interesting about that is, you know, we had a hard ceramic tile floor. If they had fallen, they would have gotten hurt. Yeah, they they leapt headfirst with giggles and joy, you know, glee as they leaped leap, because they knew two things. They knew that their dad was strong enough to catch them and he loved them so much he wouldn't intentionally drop them. And I think that's how I picture faith is uh, if I'm with somebody who's dying, you know, that to trust that God actually knows you by name and he's there and he loves you. And he's going to walk with you through this. And on the other side, you're going to be in a place where there's no more sorrow or suffering or tears. Or when you're when you're walking through hard time, you know, hard times, and just the trust that somehow I can't see it. I got to do my part. Like you lose your job, you can't just pray and sit around and wait for God to give you another job, right? Yeah. You get done, you get to work. But I'm trusting that somehow God is going to walk with me through this, and it's going to be okay. Or right now, you know, talking about the political situation that we're in, and uh, and you know, I shared with people last night. I'm not afraid. I'm I am concerned, and I think we need to constantly be making sure that we're, you know, protecting our democracy, and that we're, you know, we're aware of the threats to that. And um, but I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to do everything I can to love my neighbor, and I'm going to do everything I can to stand up for what's right. And I am not going to live my life in fear. And I know that somehow God, you know, God over the course of human history has always worked redemptively through what's going on in our world. And yeah. so I think it is that simple. It is trust that there is a God who is with us there. It is trust that God forces all things to work together for good. It is trust that the worst thing is never the last thing. And all of those things, that simple trust and that trust is, is enhanced when I pray, when I sing, when I worship, when I read scripture in all of those ways, when I talk about my faith with other people in all those ways, I find my faith is deepened, my trust in God grows and I'm less afraid than I would be otherwise. And you know, this as a person of faith, you know, over and over again in the Bible, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Unafraid. And over and over in the Bible, at least 100 times, some people say 365 times, I can't find that. But 100 times, the scripture tells us not to be afraid. And when it says, don't be afraid, why not be afraid? Because I'm with you, God says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And I wake up in the morning, I get on my knees, and I trust that he's with me. And I talk to him before I go to bed at night, the same multiple times throughout the day, knowing that God is with me, and I'm. And my task is to pay attention. God, where do you need me? What do you want me to do? How can I offer the word of encouragement or care or love to somebody else? Um, and I think that's what we all do. And when we do that, we become instruments of God's peace for other people. And we, we, you know, we help people and we care for people and we encourage them. And and so that's, I think, the life of faith. I could take all of your day, and I, you got another Zoom after this, so I, I can't take all of it. But I, one last thing I want to ask you about is. Um, 
not a, I don't think there's a single business, not that churches are businesses necessarily, but not a, not a single organizational structure that is not going to be just a little bit different, at least moving forward, some vastly different, whether it be retail or restaurants or television news. We're all going to be a little bit different um, in the future because of the last 10 months. Um, churches are obviously going to be different, too, and what they're able to do and how they're able to do it. And I've talked to other pastors on this series about what churches can learn about how better to serve their congregants moving forward. I'd love for you to address that if you want to, but I also, before you answer, I also want to ask you about um, not just the logistics of church, but the the implementing of faith in a community uh, that you think you can learn from from what this has, this last year has been like moving forward. Yeah, those are great questions. I think there's no business and no organization that's going to be untouched by what happened this last year. I mean, going forward. If, if we're not learning from this and we're not adapting, we're going to die. And I, this is one of the principles that I uh, teach in leadership is um, change, innovate, improve, or die. And we've just gone through a massive change that sped up the process of change by 10 years and 10 months, right? I mean, the things that we, sh- that we might have been doing, had to do 10 years from now, we had to do now. And I don't think we're going back. So, you know, we have, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple examples. We have <coughs> online, you know, worship and when we come back, I think it's going to take two years, if ever, that we get the same number of people back in person that we had before. Mm-hmm. I think many people have said, I really, you know, there are going to be many times I'm going to be worshiping online because I can and I'm busy or I've got something else going on. And I, I can decry that. I can say that's not good. But I think there, I think that's going to be the new reality for a lot of people. A lot of people will be joining, doing things online. We have Bible studies now where there are people from uh, one, one of my, one of our Bible studies, we have uh, 20 people in this, in the small Bible study from, I think, 10 different States and they've developed friendships. You know, they're in zoom calls, having two hour Bible study together and they become friends. Like, I don't ever want to stop doing that. I think that's the coolest thing. People are, you know, people are connecting and, and uh, being able to, uh, you know, grow together in that way, serving, you know, looking at serving opportunities where people across the country can serve together in some way in their local community, but we're going to create the model for it and, and be able to share that with other people. I, I think, so right now we have small groups, we have uh, support groups that are going on and we've, we purchased some technology. I think it's called the owl in which uh, this, this piece of technology sits in the middle of the room and it turns to whoever's speaking at a given time. So we've got people in person, but we've got people joining their support group from other states who never could have had a support group or small rural communities who never could have had a support group like that in their community. It's just the coolest thing. And so there's so many opportunities for us to change how we're doing things. And, uh, and so, you know, we're going to try to, we're going to be hybrid everything probably from this time forward, uh, because there are going to be a whole lot of people are going to join us online that can't join us in person. So you know, I, I think there's just huge numbers and, you know, making hospital calls or having committee meetings. I don't, I hope we never go back to having committee meetings where everybody has to show up at our Leewood campus because we have people who live in North Kansas City and Lawrence who go to our church. So why not just do Zoom meetings forever on committees? I mean, I, and I hate the thought of traveling to another state to go to a meeting when I can have a Zoom call from my basement. I'm, you know, that's just the way it's going to be going forward. And so a lot of really awesome changes. I've, I was asked to speak to preach at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. A, a month ago. And 
what was really cool is I preached from Church of the Resurrection, our sanctuary. We filmed it and then shared it with the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. I didn't have to travel two days to go there and come back and, and preach. And, you know, I could preach from the sanctuary to another place. And, and so it's, it's, it's just cool. The technology and what, what it's made possible is pretty amazing. And even things like you and I sitting here uh, sure. having this conversation would have, you know, probably wouldn't have happened. We're not for COVID and all of our, you know, realizing, Hey, we can do some pretty cool stuff, you know, by zoom. So yeah. I'm, but I think I'm that's actually, interesting too, about, about yeah. not just the, like, like the distance of church itself, but the, the, out into the community, the go into the world part of of, of a church's um, mission, uh, I, I think is, is is an interesting thought process moving forward of, of what it's going to look like, what it can look like. And I've had, you're not the first person on this series that I've talked to that has said, listen, if we don't take advantage of the new way that people are used to interacting with one another to, to go out to people, um, we're doing something wrong. That's right. At last night, Tuesday nights, I have a Vesper service. Uh, it's on Facebook Live. I've never used Facebook Live in my life <laughs> before this happened. So I do this thing, you know, where, where I'm offering 30 minutes of just encouragement. And, you know, right now we're studying the Ten Commandments. I had a new book come out on the Ten Commandments uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm taking each of the commandments. We're kind of unpacking them on Tuesday nights. But it's the coolest thing. We had like 960 people from, well, 960 streams. That was probably 1,000, I don't know, 1,100 people or something from across the country, 7.30 at night or 8.30 if they're on the East Coast or, you know, 5.30 on the West Coast. And, and they're typing in, you know, comments to each other on the screen and they're, you know, they're, they're praying for each other. I mean, somebody said, I have this prayer concern. I'm, you know, busy talking and they're busy, you know, I'm praying for you right now kind of stuff. And it's like, how cool is that? All of these people connected together and people, again, some of them hadn't gone to church anywhere, but their friends said, hey, why don't you join this pastor from Kansas City on Tuesday nights for 30 minutes of, you know, encouragement. And I just, I feel really excited about the future. And I feel hopeful, um, you know, about how technology, how we'll use technology, how we'll do ministry in new and different ways uh, in the future. I also think it's going to be hard for a lot of folks who can't adapt. There's a lot of churches who have been unable to to, uh, you know, use the technology or to be able to hold it together. Now, some of those churches are small enough, they're meeting, you know, every Sunday right now, and they're doing what they, they've gone back to doing what they've always been doing. And that's great, because they can. But, um, but I think, you know, you're either learning how to embrace the technology, or you're not going to make it. And I think that's true in every industry, your news industry is another one of those where, you know, in journalism, there's so many radical changes that have happened. But I'm finding I'm paying for news, I'm paying for newspapers online that I never paid for before. I never would have even thought of subscribing because I can and I value what they're doing, but they created new ways of, of distributing the news. And same thing with, you know, with TV and, you know, what you all are doing. Half the time I'm watching online versus, uh, you know, versus watching on the tube because I can watch anywhere, I, anywhere I'm at, you know, so it's pretty cool to see you guys doing what you do and I can do it, you know, in different times and places. So anyway, I value, you know, these changes is pretty cool. Last thing I'm going to ask you, uh, obviously, this is going to be on our Facebook page where lots of people are able to see it. If someone hears this conversation and says, you know what, I, I would like to go maybe try this church. I, I've stepped away or I want to try, try a, a faith community for the first time. What's the first step if someone wants to come in and be part of the church there? So cor.org is our website, core.org for Church of Resurrection, core.org. Uh, and on the weekends, Saturday night at 5 o'clock, Sunday morning, 7.30, 9.15, 11 o'clock, Sunday night at 5, 
uh, we're broadcasting. And, uh, and so people can join us anytime for that and, uh, and worship with us in that way. But they can also check out sermons at our website at core.org. Uh, they can look at past worship services. They can see other resources we have. We also have five campuses throughout Kansas City, and uh, we are doing a few things at those campuses right now, but we'll, come spring, we'll be reopening. And so we've got one in downtown Kansas City at 18th and Grand, um, 16th and Grand, uh, right across from the Kansas City Star Building. Uh, we have one at K7 and K10, roughly K7 and K10 in, um, in Olathe. We've got one in Blue Springs at uh, Adams Dairy Parkway at I-70. We've got one at 95th and Antioch, uh, Resurrection Evelyn Park. And then our uh, largest campus, the original campus is at 137th and Knoll. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton, and I post stuff almost every day and the live Vespers on Tuesday nights, uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton, and I'm at Rev Adam Hamilton on Twitter. And, uh, and so I try to post something there every day as well. I, I posted on Facebook just a little bit ago before I joined you. My granddaughter spent the night last night. She brought me breakfast in bed, and I posted a picture of what she brought me for breakfast in bed. But usually I'm, you know, with what's going on in DC, I've been posting things there too. And then Facebook gives you a lot of opportunity for people to have conversations and and uh, so, anyway, that's that's a little of how you can reach out. I also, uh, you know, I've written some books. There's a little book that I might mention. I wrote a number of years ago called "Why: Making Sense of God's Will." And I know this is the uh, number one question people have: is how do I make sense of suffering? And I wrote this yeah. little book to be read in about 45 minutes. And um, people, that's on Amazon and other places. Uh, it has helped a lot of people be able to make sense of, you know, and why do my prayers go unanswered and how do we make sense of these things? And so that may be something some of your uh, folks would be interested in. And also I mentioned this book, Words of Life, uh, Jesus and the Promise of the Ten Commandments today. This is a copy of it. And uh, it's just a deep dive into the Ten Commandments and asking, how do they speak to us today? And it's interesting, just the events of last week in the Capitol, you're going to find five of the Ten Commandments were violated in, in that process, you know, and there's just ways that there's just it, but in our daily lives you know the ten commandments give us a sense of here's what god's will would be for us and how we're meant to live in relationship with each other and god and most people used to know the ten commandments and now today most people don't remember them i did a pop quiz with people the other day and on my vespers and most people could get five out of ten and they didn't know the order and and really didn't understand completely what they meant you know jesus kind of expands them and uh so anyway if anybody's interested um Join me on Facebook Live or check out the books too. Well, now you have me running through my head. How many could I get out of the 10? I'm a little bit worried about that now. After that, <laughs> that. So Pastor Hamilton from United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Taylor, it was great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on.